the biggest challenge of this, of course, was I'd never been faced with that before. I had a team of volunteers who'd never been faced with that before. Mm. And the community didn't understand it either. This is A Little Life. Everyone feels a lack of inspiration at times. Sometimes a bit overwhelmed and feeling like we're going through life on autopilot. Taking that next step is always scary. This show is meant to be a practical guide for anyone listening, no matter what stage of life they're in. Each episode, I speak with a different guest who is building a meaningful life for themselves in different parts of the world. Whether it's addressing social issues through hip-hop music in India, spreading awareness about endangered animals on an island in the Pacific Ocean, to tackling invisible illnesses through the help of technology, or making couture fashion from old newspapers, we discuss career choices, personal growth, and doing some good with the time that we have. After all, it's only a little life. My name is Aniket, and I work in the music industry at a company called Outdustry. We specialize in the India and China music markets, and we're working towards building a fair and rewarding ecosystem for creators who give us awesome music to listen to. Before Outdustry, I was working in the fintech space uh, in London for a company called Accenture, and I focused on digital payments. In 2018, I decided to take what I had learned and apply it to something that I cared deeply about, which is music. And I ended up moving back home to India and haven't looked back since. My first guest is Ben Howitt. He is a wildlife conservationist and he is currently based in the UK. He's also a very dear friend of mine for nearly a decade now. Ben is brilliant and he has so many interesting stories that this conversation went on a lot longer than I had expected it to. So to capture all of that, I'm splitting this first episode into two parts. Part one is super topical given the craziness around coronavirus right now and for context we recorded this towards the end of March in 2020. Part two is its own trip and I'm going to let you hear why directly from Ben in the next episode. And I'll spend the next minute or so introducing Ben before we actually jump into the conversation. But if you want to get straight into it, you can skip ahead. A quick heads up though, we recorded this conversation on Skype and my voice sometimes sounds a bit muffled. But thankfully Ben's comes through very clearly. Now who is Ben? Ben was actually my first friend in university in Bristol, which is two hours west of London. He studied veterinary sciences at uni, which is a five-year course, and he has been practicing since he graduated in 2016. Ben's dad is English and his mum is Argentinian. He grew up as an expat in Singapore before returning to the UK for university. His first job out of uni was at an animal clinic in Guernsey, which is an island off the coast of France. 
He then spent the next eight months as the lead vet at the Darwin Animal Clinic in the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific Ocean. The clinic was named after Charles Darwin. And for trivia nerds, Darwin's visit to the Galapagos Islands in the mid-1800s had a huge impact on the formation of his theory of evolution via natural selection. This was an amazing conversation. Ben is truly a great guy and there's a lot to learn from him. So, without further ado, I give you Ben Howitt, part one. I hope you enjoy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Really good to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's been crazy that we have to actually get onto a podcast to see each other because we haven't been <laughs> along. And it's required a, a global isolation pandemic for us to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how much I like it. <laughs> Where are you now? I'm in Bath. Okay. So I'm in the countryside, which is quite lucky at nice. this time. Is it quite isolated? Yeah, it's quite isolated and thankfully the sun's out. We've got a garden so uh, we can at least escape um, these poor people in flats like yourself. I, I, I feel <laughs> like happy, happy days. Yeah, happy days. So let's, let's uh, dive straight in and I thought we can start by kind of giving anyone who's listening a bit of context. So do you want to give like a brief background as to your motivations behind getting into veterinary sciences like is that something you always wanted to do how did that come about yeah I think I think the answer to that question has changed and it depends on who I'm speaking to as well I, I think the, the idea behind veterinary science is it, it encompasses so many areas into one you know I enjoyed working with animals and of course there's a lot of careers you can do that with but I also enjoyed the science and the medical aspect um, you know, there's the potential to go into research there. You have it, but the the most important bit for me as well is that it also encompassed uh, the practical side. You know, so you you can work practically within science and medicine is very similar. But I, I wanted to go into more uh, the veterinary aspect, wildlife. Um, I found that more exciting when I was that age. You know, 17, 18, and um, and the beauty of it. I mean, that was my focus. It was practical, animal oriented, and medical oriented and you so knew was, from the start like this is what i want to do yeah i think i, I had a my uncle was out uh, was a vet in argentina believe it or not and oh. once when i was really young we only went out to see him and i think i was fairly stuck on that path when i was must have been 13 uh, 14. and um, i i didn't budge from it um and so i went through the whole school with that um nice. direction was there ever a point where you're like i could do that or I could do something else? Um, you know what, I don't think there was in one. I, I had, there were so many options available and, and our school was huge. It was, you know, an international school in Singapore, UWC. And it, we had so many different people who wanted to go down different paths. I, I think I was quite stubborn in, in wanting to achieve that. Yeah. I wanted to we were everybody was so set on career goals at that age which is a huge amount of stress for for a lot of people who don't know what they want to do you yeah. Know? Uh, yeah yeah um and i was so ready to avoid that 
that I had yeah. set my mind on it. And I said, I'm going to do this. Nobody can change my mind. So I could just avoid that entire uncertainty. And it was quite lucky I had that influence when I was younger. Um, and it just set me on that path, which was brilliant. Sick, man. So let's um, get stuck in with your journey of being a vet. Like now you've made the decision. Can you like sort of break down for dummies? What would the difference in education be for a vet versus medicine? There's a lot more similarities between medicine and veterinary than differences. But the difference with veterinary courses that you're very much after five years, you're needing to come out as a fully functional or as functional surgeon. Yeah. You know, so you no doubt once you graduate, you're not a competent vet. Usually I'd say you're not a competent vet to at least you're a year or two out of university. But you are expected with support to go straight out and perform surgeries, neutering, for example, you know, spades and stuff like that. Uh, while medicine more goes towards sort of an academic researcher, practical route, um, that then they require further courses um, depending on which area of medicine they want to go through, you know, surgeon, I, I, they could talk about that in much more detail than me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so that, that's the difference. You, so there's a lot, uh, there's a lot more to cram in to that period of time. So then how did your job at Gonzi come about? So I actually have family there as well. And since all my family, the rest of my family, parents and things were abroad in Singapore while I was studying, I had nowhere really to stay for my placements, you know. So I went over and stayed with my grandparents in Guernsey and I worked at the practice there as a, as a placement in my fourth and fifth year. And then when I left, um, they offered me a job and, and I went over and it was, a, it was a fantastic place to start. It was, nice. it was it was growing there about 10 vets you know a good 40 staff they had ct machine had just started up and running so that's quite high tech for okay. you can imagine and um the beauty of it as well is that it was mixed practice so i could practice well just learn skills in all the different fields because i wasn't 100 sure what uh, what i wanted to do yeah yet. did you have um someone that you were working under or learning from or was it a more decentralized kind of learning process um I was learning under all of them, really. All of my, all of the the vets there were quite well established in their careers, so so I had all of their expertise for me, which was really lucky. You know, I yeah. some had better skills with horses, others better skills with cows, others really good surgeons. So I could pick and pick and uh, mix which uh, mentor I had for which case. So it was fantastic for my first year, year and a half, two years. That sounds sick. And what prompted the change? So I was, um, from the upbringing, to be honest, in Singapore, I mean, we were always fairly, you know, sitting still was not something I was prepared to do for very long, especially in my mid-20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, um, and I was always going to move away from Guernsey. And then, so after about two and a half years, I felt really confident and competent in my work. And I found an advert on Facebook, believe it or not. No way. Yeah, and it was on one of these groups called Veterinary Charity or Volunteering. Um, and there was a position opening for a veterinary manager to go down to a clinic in the Galapagos. Okay. And I thought, ooh, well, um, 
that was an opportunity that I couldn't really give a miss. And so I applied and I had a Skype interview and they're a lovely team and they gave me the position okay, to start not too long after. Um, and it was, it was, it was brilliant. Um, going down to the Galapagos was, it's a dream for a lot of people, you know, including myself. It's just a, certainly if you have that interest and that passion for wildlife and, um, and I went down and I, it was a charity clinic. So, you know, not very big, it was run by volunteers and I was going to be taking on the position as the manager, managing vet. And I, that was really attractive because I felt really confident and I thought, let's give it a go. And I wanted some manager experience just to try and see how I liked it. Um, and it was a huge eye opener, you know, the going from a very high tech clinic um, into a clinic with you, the bare basics and the necessities, yeah. very difficult. You know, you go from working up every single case with blood tests, um, you know, and diagnostics, and then you go and you have none. So yeah. where does, and you don't know. And so it's trying to relearn how to deal in the in sort of an environment that doesn't have it. And it was just such a good learning curve for me. Um, and then at the same th time, the, all of the clients were Spanish speakers, you know. So I was suddenly immersed myself in, in an environment where I had a base in Spanish, but I now had to do a consultation in a whole different language and still trying to figure out what was going oh. on. Okay. So suddenly I had that, which I had to pick up really quickly. And uh, all of this is in the span of months. In months. Absolutely. I arrived there in March and and I was up and running on my own as manager in two weeks later. Um, so back so up, back up one second, like you've seen this ad on Facebook and <laughs> you've clicked on the job profile and it says the chief vet or the manager managing vet at the Darwin Animal Clinic in the Galapagos Islands. They're like, okay, that seems interesting. What did you, what information did you have before you made the decision? Well, I think I did, I did know that it was Spanish speaking. So I did, you know, I had this, um, so I did take lessons again before going. And I, and I knew they had, you know, the clinic had about 10 years behind it of different, you know, they change manager every six months or a year. Um, because it was effectively a voluntary position you have you know uh, pay to pay your way for food and stuff but an accommodation which was great and you know but I was at the point in my career where I was so ready for change um, but not knowing what that change was or what I wanted <laughs> that I saw the opportunity yeah. I think I don't think there was much that was going to convince me otherwise I, th I think, you know, it was such an attractive opportunity. It was, you know, it started, it was just six months to start with. It wasn't going to be a long, um, you know, the end of the world, six months is not the Fair. end of the world. It's in Galapagos, which is the center of, of Darwinism and theory of evolution. And, you know, it's always wonders of David Attenborough. I thought, God, can you imagine anything better than that? Yeah. And, and, I, and I applied for it and I suddenly convinced myself, you know, that I didn't want to do anything but um and and i think you know i i in one respect i i do have a habit of just sticking my head in and figuring it out as i go along yeah. which is great in some environments not great in others so you know <laughs> you, you choose um but i i want to just get stuck in i wanted to change i want to get out of europe and um and, and i took it and 
And so I knew the basics. I was very confident in my ability as a vet. Um, and but it was very stressful at yeah. least for six weeks um because because within eight days of me taking over the management um we had a campaign organized which is a sterilization campaign and what that is is you effectively we packed up the clinic um all our supplies we got all our volunteers who are you know a lot of them are students you know so they're not experienced vets and we shipped all that stuff over to another of the islands called Isabella. And and there we did a, a very intense three-day sterilization campaign. And we'd sterilize between, you know, 65 and 115 animals in three days with a very small team of six people. And we did do this with the government. The government were fantastic in allowing us to, you know, for us to support and join in with these campaigns. So what, what was this campaign meant to achieve, like sterilizing in what sense? So the the whole notion notion behind conservation, you know, is trying to tackle a completely different side of conservation with 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 these clinics. And that is the conflict between, you know, pets, domestic animals, horses, cows, goats, dogs, cats and uh, the wildlife, you know, and, and if these these cats and dogs, their population grows they start to compete you know with the wildlife you have um predation so the cats go and take the the iguanas and certain net birds and finches you have what attack them kill them yeah kill them eat them and then this is an environment where these animals don't really have predators or too many anyway yeah and then you have so they compete for the resources as well so for herbivores like the horses and the goats they'll eat all the vegetation away from the tortoises yeah yeah and then you've got the other thing, which is they introduce disease. So going in, doing mass sterilization and hopefully vaccination where where it's available means that you can, if you keep the, those under control, you can protect the wildlife. That's insane. Okay. Like just describe the Galapagos Islands to me because in my head it sounds like a, like I can't even imagine it. So, I mean, the Galapagos uh, is exactly as you can imagine it with with David Attenborough the the wildlife is there is everywhere it's not like you have to travel special places or with special trips to see it some you do you know if you want to go diving you can see whale sharks manta rays dolphins hammerheads was a big thing and diving is stunning out there mm. um I've got some of those videos actually I'll, I'll have to patch them through to you of, of diving with manta rays it's it's great you know and then you have the iguanas and the pelicans and those are just actually you know within the towns you know they're just amongst you so it's and it's all very they're all very happy with your presence and you've got so many different ecosystems so you've got the um the volcanic part which is just desolate and arid mm. um, and then you've got the areas where the the first flora has colonized it so you get the cactuses the salt marshes and the mangroves and then it, you know as it's, it's the hundreds of thousands and millions of years as it's allowed to grow you've got just full forested dense forest you know so you've got yeah. a huge range of ecosystems in one place so it's not just what you know it's hundreds of ecosystems Incredible. that's why you have so many species with special adaptations because they are in isolated in different ecosystems yeah and what are the people like people are lovely to us absolutely fantastic they are working within the community was hard you know is most of the fun really yeah. 
and it was just learning the different the cultural traits everybody there is very much aware of their environment mm. you know and doing their best um to try and protect it as well which is which is fantastic there's not many places in the world where the community builds in to protect their environment but here that everybody is is very much on the same page and so it's a real pleasure to see that amazing so you've been it's it's been a year or you spent a year over there uh, so that's about eight months in total there mm-hmm. um and steep learning curve started like got straight stuck in and then obviously you mentioned you faced some challenges um Yeah. So, so this is a very yeah, a very topical part for all of us to understand about epidemiology and you know with the current covid outbreak. But when we were out there, we had an outbreak of a distemper. A distemper is a virus that you know travels by coughing, by secretions, you know, and uh, it affects uh, the lungs and the brain of dogs. It is the biggest global killer of dogs. You know, all our dogs are vaccinated against it. If you get your dog vaccinated that is the core vaccine and we had an outbreak of it on this one island um in august last year and in total we had 148 dogs with symptoms of of it and it's a really difficult thing to deal with um because it just spreads like wildfire you have to every time you get one of these dogs in you have to shut the clinic down to a huge you know 40 minute scrub of the environment even shut down for the afternoon because it's so contagious really yeah it is is really really contagious and um you know it does it does kill um and we had a, that was a huge challenge for us because it was a good six weeks of this of constant inflow of dogs with distemper you know some were very lucky and survived others you know we did have to put down um, for welfare grounds because it affects the brain and you're completely if a dog's seizuring you can't do much with it um if it's distemper okay mm. um and and it was a real the biggest challenge of this of course was i'd never been faced with that before i had a team of volunteers who'd never been faced with that before mm. and you know the and the community didn't understand it either you know so trying to relay that information of saying what this virus is mm. and and you know tell them about the roots going forward people didn't appreciate it and not because of anything but the fact that they just didn't understand it which is fair enough you know if it's not told to them then how are people supposed to understand it mm-hmm. and so if you have your dog suffering with this condition going down very rapidly deteriorating very rapidly and we talk to them and say look this is this it's distemper this is what's probably going to happen we'll can try with this treatment and support it but there's a high chance that it it won't work um you know what point do people listen and what people point to people say um no i don't i don't want i don't take your advice and you're seeing that with the covid treatment now people are being told to stay indoors and people aren't because they don't understand the danger and the threat these viruses can can hold so so we had a good 6 to 8 weeks of this um which was horrendous um it was uh, and um, i needed a break from the vet profession i think for a good month or two after that because it was just this you know complete mindset of having full litters of puppies with distemper and you can't do anything about it you know and this is the reality of 
going further afield, you know, in areas of the world that don't have access to vaccines or don't get their pets vaccinated because they don't understand. Galapagos is very good compared to other places, but still these things happen. So um, it, that was a big lesson I learned and a big eye opener for me. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I think that was probably the reason why I feel responsibility to going back to the islands. That's, that sounds so difficult on so many levels. How did you go about managing the situation in terms of your team of volunteers? Like, how did you go about first getting yourself uh, to grips with the entire situation? How did you think about the planning um, consequences? Like, what, what was your thought process in terms of acting at that point in time? Well, we had a good meeting with the government officials who were very much on it and they sort of gave their guidelines. But a lot of the people of the communities would come to us, not the government with their pets, you know. And so we had their instructions there um, in place. So at least I had that idea to fall back on. But a lot of that was a lot more stricter than I felt I could enforce on the people, mm. you know, um, and the risk of distemper. So the reason why it's such a concern there is it is transmissible to the sea lions. And the Galapagos sea lion is, a, is an endemic species and it's naive to this virus. And can you imagine that virus hitting a popu the population of sea lions? It would be devastating. So we it was always very strict on our, if we had a distemper case, we'd have to report it to the government. But suddenly if you have an outbreak of mm. quite a few hundred plus of dogs coming in over a period, then you can't, the government are overwhelmed themselves yeah so we had to make that decision now our our volunteers would change every week you know so or every week or two weeks so i was reinitiating people into the out you know the outcome of what to expect and then you have a mixture of people who are very experienced vets but have never seen distemper yeah. and you've got a mixture of students who aren't experienced vets whatsoever and and trying to manage all of this was was hugely exhausting i had a fantastic um vet tech who was with me managing this situation for the entire time and she was brilliant to take some pressure off and mm -hmm. share the pressure um but the, the the calls were always mine yeah you know and and i wasn't going to expect any volunteer to make the call i'd have to make the talk call so um so i don't think you can prepare for that environment unless you've experienced it before and i mm -hmm. hadn't experienced before so I was learning as I was going along, but um, very, very telling, very, very interesting, huge. Unbelievable, unbelievable. How did you get it in control or was that a more natural process? No, I think a lot of these viruses have a natural end. Okay. Whether it's a case that unfortunately all of the animals that are um, vulnerable to it either die or gain immunity from it mm. or in certain environments, specifically with distemper, um, it's the environment and the weather. So when the weather hits, there was a, a it, it prefers sort of a wetter season, not too wet, but a wetter season mm. because it can't survive in the environment too long. OK, it gets killed by sunlight after a few hours. So it requires a host. But the wetter season allows it to persist. Less sunlight, more mm. water. And so as soon as the hot, dry season was going to come in, we would we were expecting less cases. But it was just mm -hmm. getting 
that's you know you have a set time and we said well we've got to ensure that the animals that are here now have to be addressed treated or not depending on how they present um you know because if you have a positive dog i mean when it goes into into the medical world and the veterinary world you know we're very much educated on individual health okay so whoever's in hospital sure. that is patient that person i knew i will go through everything with that person okay so my focus mm -hmm. is the patient that's come into me my consultation that dog if it needs to be admitted that's my patient will go through a b c d diagnostics the same with human medicine that person coming in with a mm -hmm. respiratory illness they're going to be my patient a b c and d and you care about that person but when you go into yeah. an environment like conservation and arguably veterinary in some areas as well that all changes your focus is the population and yeah. not don't care about the individual but you'll have to have that bigger picture of saying what is healthy so if you yeah. have an outbreak of distemper virus around your dog population and you're being overwhelmed by it the focus is to make sure the rest of the dog stay healthy because i can't mm. do much stock i can treat it i can abide by the symptoms nothing kills a virus but your own immune system so so i'm if so if you get an influx of animals coming in yeah. if i send that animal home on treatment although i know it's positive i am risking that animal going and interacting with more dogs and perpetuating the spread so what do yeah. you do positive case so it's really difficult you know of course in our environment you'd isolate it and make yeah. sure it's it's fun but you know in certain certain areas that's not possible and so you see the same with the covid you know of course individual health is important and that's what all the nurses and, and our nhs for us staff are doing but the government and the industries are looking at the population yeah and the individuals unfortunately becomes a statistic they need to make sure the rest of us stay healthy we isolate so there's a whole different style of medicine that you know i was exposed to yeah so you've seen both styles and you've like kind of been exposed to both styles very very early on yes yeah very very early in my career i i, I was very lucky to to get that exposure yeah and it's quite interesting the way you say it because that kind of mindset at the end of the day of individual versus big picture and not necessarily versus also it becomes an either or in that case but um scaling in a way how do you take what's applicable to one and scale it to many yeah it's it's the same in every industry you know i mean there's different results and uh, but the scale like you say is the same it's trying to adjust our our vision Mm -hmm. uh, accordingly yeah. <laughs> which the challenge but you obviously have to take the call of either helping a population of animals or like making the wrong decision which would be very very dangerous so the how do you switch between those mindsets of wanting the best for both you can you can in every aspect you know address the best of both with the right amount of people you can have people who are addressing the individual animal and those addressing the population mm -hmm. but we didn't have enough people um i think i don't think there's a right answer in that i you know every environment is different i 
I didn't necessarily switch between the two. I I, I tried to address both. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I did a good job of it, um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't. I can't figure that out. Um, I won't know. You know, I, I I I did what I thought was right at the time. Yeah. But it, it is self-reflecting on it. Um, I'm still doing that. You know, you're still trying to figure out what what I could have done better um, in that environment and and learn from it. But you know, I hope to God I won't be exposed to that environment again. But yeah. it is very important to, um, and I, I think it's very important for me as well uh, to um, spread that understanding to a lot of, of a lot of my peers or, or students coming through. I've done a lot of I've done a few sort of university talks, and I've shown them the videos of of you know these animals with distemper, and and just to try and say, look, you're probably never going to see this because I didn't until I left the UK. But, um, what were your learnings from it? Well, my learnings hmm. from that situation, just from dealing with it. Um, there's so many. It's really hard to. Yeah. To, so, you know, you've got the ones. You know, as in, in a career route. Or, you know, I learnt learnings how to ensure that these animals were healthy, how I could address the population, how I could support the individuals and the animal without compromising the health of others. And I tried my best to, to learn that. And I, and in certain environments, I may have done that really badly. Other environments, because I was taking more of an emotional call rather than rational call, because mm-hmm. you, you have to uh, acknowledge that, you know, emotion plays a big part in this. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then you've got to have the, you know, other cases, maybe I was too rational and not enough emotional. Yeah. To, the needs of the person and her and their animals so i think i learned a lot from that side and and of course the other environment was is is my own um um frustration with it you know you, my own emotional well-being in, in trying to encourage this it is a huge pressure to make those life and death decisions and bear the responsibility of of them and i think the biggest lesson I learned is that I was I ignored myself for the good six to eight weeks. And when I when I left the Galapagos after this outbreak and I, I came back to the UK, I was so mentally exhausted from yeah. it all. I did not really want to see another dog for, <laughs> for a few yeah. weeks. You know, and I didn't I didn't acknowledge that within myself. So I um so I think that's a lesson that I learned more is I should um you know, the intensity was too great. Um without giving myself some time to yeah. it, to reflect. So um, I think there's a huge amount of lessons. Um, I'm still recalling really from it. So there you go. That was part one of my conversation with Ben. And already so much stood out to me from this episode. A big takeaway I felt is a way to manage uncertainty and pressure You can always lower the stakes for yourself, which helps you get started. For example, Ben wasn't committing his life to the Galapagos. He told himself it's only going to be six months. Similarly, I've started this podcast as a six episode experiment. No pressure. Lowering the stakes like this also addresses that fear of failure, you know. What if I'm not good enough to do it? Should I even start? It's also a reminder to take some time to self-reflect. 
Notice how Ben spoke about balancing his rational and emotional sides. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed part one. Do check out the next episode, which is part two of the same conversation. Thanks for listening.